Hello, folks. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. My name is Roy Bensby, and I'm your host. And this week on the podcast, we have Brian Hare. Brian is the author of The Genius of Dogs, uh, along with his wife, Vanessa Woods. And the new book is Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity. And I have not read the new one, although I am about to start it soon. But I have read The Genius of Dogs, and it is a great, great book. I absolutely loved it. And that's why I wanted to have Brian on the podcast to talk about dogs. And I think for many years, and that's also something that he points out in the book, they were perceived as just plain. They were genetically engineered and bred over time. And now they're just domesticated and artificial, and there's nothing really special about them. And that's actually couldn't be further from the truth. They have certain abilities that even our closest relatives like bonobos, like chimps, do not have. And obviously, bonobos and chimps have other characteristics and traits and qualities that dogs don't have. So it was a really fun conversation. I actually got to ask him uh, a lot of questions that I always thought about. It's stuff that, you know, when you have a relationship with your dog, you think they know everything and you think they understand your feelings, but you're not sure. So Brian gave us some scientific answers that are as close to certainty as currently possible. And it was very interesting to know that some of the things that I've thought for, for, you know, for a very long time are true and some maybe not necessarily true. But they are very unique. I don't think there's any other animal that exists more than 300 um, breeds of that specific animal. And then on top of that, what, they sniff out bombs and cancer. They guide the blind. They're emotional support animals. They herd sheep, protect houses and people. They star in movies and shows. They travel on planes and cars. They fetch wild game and just lounge around on the couch endlessly for hours. And they're nothing short of absolutely spectacular and unique. They come in all different sizes. Um, they exist in every single country on Earth. And unlike the, the wolf relatives that basically have been decimated and hunted to extinction in, in majority of the countries that they used to be found, dogs are prevalent everywhere. Dogs, you can't go to, to any single country on earth and not find dogs and not find that they are usually thriving. Not always. They obviously still have many, many problems and that's stuff that I talked to, to, to a few guests in the past about. So this podcast was not about that. This was just more about their reactionary ability, the evolution of humans and dogs together, how we coexisted, why would wolves and humans all those thousands of years back even figure out uh, a relationship that helped both species. That's a very unlikely couple to form that marriage. But Brian tells us a little bit about why they think that all these things happen and how we evolved with one another over time 
And yeah, it's a, it's just a fascinating conversation. It's a really great book. I'm going to put uh, the link in the show notes, The Genius of Dogs. You should pick it up and also the, the new book as well. I'll put everything in the show notes. And as usual, guys, uh, subscribe, rate, review. I'm working on new episodes with really, really fascinating and, and fun guests and fun conversations. So I hope you guys enjoy it. And yeah, without further ado, here is this week's guest, Brian Hare. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Nice to be with you. So yeah, Brian, I wanted to have you on for a while now. I've uh, I, I love your book, and I've been hearing your your talks, and uh, you know, dogs. That's something I think that anyone can relate, or at least majority of people. I know there's some people that are you know not very much into dogs. I don't know why, but. They exist, and um, I'm, I'm I'm a dog person, so I've, I've been wanting to talk to you. It seems like you know more about dogs than most people, so uh, thanks for uh, coming. Oh, so it's, I yeah, there's it, it doesn't get tiring or boring to talk about dogs. I I definitely love dogs too, so uh, you know, uh, it'll be fun. Yeah, awesome, man. So how did you uh, how did you get into this? Did you know? Just maybe walk us through this a little bit. Did you have dogs growing up? Is this something you were always fascinated by? Yeah, you know, I my best friend growing up was a dog, uh, and I my um, uh, my little brother was born when I was seven and a half, and we had a bunch of kids in our family. And I think my parents felt sorry for me because I was a middle child, and so they got me this little wriggly black Labrador puppy right when my little brother was born because I, I guess they figured I was going to be ignored. <laughs> and, uh, so we became best friends. And, uh, so, um, you know, I, I grew up with this wonderful Labrador retriever named Oreo and, uh, he kind of took care of me and we went everywhere together. You know, I, I was riding my bike around the neighborhood, um, yeah. suburbs of Atlanta. He was with me and, and, uh, you know, and of course he was obsessed playing fetch and, um, so we played fetch, I played baseball, he played fetch. So, uh, you know, that sort of, what started it all was that relationship. And then just like any person who has a dog, you wonder what they're thinking. And, yeah. and so when I got to college and discovered that, Oh my gosh, there's a whole field, a whole career path where people get paid to figure out how animals <laughs> think like, Oh, well, let me go find out about that. So, yeah. I want to do that. Yeah. What? <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah. So, and then I guess that you became or is that you went into the field of evolutionary uh, anthropologist. Can you explain maybe that what that entails? Yeah, so evolutionary anthropology is terrible branding. Um, <laughs> if, if we were a brand uh, and it was like brand, whatever that measure is, you know, where Coca-Cola and Google and Facebook are all at the top, brand recognition yeah. and, and positivity, I think we'd be at the very, very bottom. Uh, <laughs> evolutionary anthropology, like what is that? Um, yeah. So it, basically all it is is the biology of humans. Um, so biologists study all of life, but uh, in our field, we study uh, how biology can be used to understand humans. Um, and uh, because a lot of the approach we take is an evolutionary approach, it's called evolutionary anthropology. And anthropology just means the study of humans. So it's a really uh, 
esoteric way to say we want to understand humans better and we use biology to do it. So it, it got, you got disconnected for a second. I didn't hear the last part. Yeah, so we want to understand humans and we just use biology to do it. Yeah, I mean, as far as branding, I, I had a guest on the other day and um, he used to be an actuary. And oh. I've, 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 I've no, I had no idea what that was. And apparently like all the podcasts and all the talks that he used to give, no one knew what that was either. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, there are worse on the branding uh, levels. There's someone that are a little more down on the, on the slope. Um, so I saw a talk that uh, your wife, Vanessa, gave and um, where she joked about how hard it was to work together and writing a book. And that's something I was, I was intrigued by because, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who work as couples, they co-founded companies. And I've always been interested in how it is to work and have a relationship. Yeah, so we are uh, really attached to the hip. We uh, work uh, uh, together, we play together, we raise kids together, uh, live together. So uh, <laughs> we don't really have a choice but to like each other. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it really, the book is really a marriage. Uh, and we, we actually have two books. We have the dog book you showed and we have our, our newest book is this one. Um, it's Survival of the Friendliest. And it's... Um, can't wait to read that one. Uh, yeah, and it's about it's about uh, humans, um, and uh, so anyway, we've written both these books together, and both both uh, it have been an adventure because Vanessa is a science journalist, a science communicator, and I'm a scientist, um, and so uh, you know I want to get it right and be accurate and boring, and no one would ever want to read it. And uh, Vanessa uh, really wants to make sure people enjoy it and take uh, broccoli and turn it into ice cream. Yeah. Um, and and so anything we write, if you enjoy it, it's despite me. Um, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it's it it is um, uh, a challenge uh, and a lot of work, uh, but we somehow have managed. Uh, and we, every time we finish, and now we finish this new book, we're like, we're never doing that again. <laughs> um, but, but we're already, we already have, uh, you know, we're already working on our next book together. So I don't know, I guess, I guess we're just begging for more pain. It's part of the process, right? It's just, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so yeah, let's, uh, let's talk, let's talk dogs. You know, this is one of my favorite subjects. I've actually had like a, a good amount of people on the podcast that somehow either, uh, shoot dogs, uh, I mean, photography or work with dogs or study dogs i just that's something I'm, i've always been interested in and uh, you know when i was small i would always tell my mom i'm gonna be a vet that was kind of like my dream job yeah yeah years old. and uh yeah that uh fizzled out fairly quickly in my teenage years but um um it can you tell us, yeah can you tell us a little bit about uh, the research uh that led you to work and, and test out all your theories on your uh and your cute dog Oreo. Yeah, yeah, I think the the big thing to understand is, you know, dog lovers are convinced that there's something special about dogs, and and if you've lived with a dog, you're often impressed with their intelligence. Um, so it's surprising to know that scientists who were studying animal psychology and animal intelligence were totally uninterested in dogs. Um, there was almost no work on uh, uh, dog psychology, um, and so. Uh, what happened was uh, I was working with my undergraduate advisor and I was studying chimpanzees, actually. I was 
studying how chimpanzees uh, understand human gestures. So that's like if somebody points in a direction, um, you understand they're pointing and they want you to see something. Yeah. Or maybe, or, uh, uh, you know, they want you to see something or go in a certain direction or they're trying to help you find something. Um, you know, New York, they're trying to, sh- you know, like go down Fifth Avenue and take a left at the first light or whatever. Um, they're trying to help you. Um, so, um, you know, we were, tra- we, what we were finding was that chimpanzees were terrible at this. They were, you know, as smart as they are, they really struggle to cooperate and communicate by using gestural communication. Um, and so he was explaining to me how important this was in human development. At nine to 12 months, we all first begin to understand pointing in others and we start to produce pointing. And it's our first window into other people's minds. It's the first thing we do that sort of helps us understand what others are thinking and what they intend and what they want. Um, and so at one point he said, since chimpanzees can't do this and they're our close uh, you know, genetic relative, I think this is unique to humans. I think humans are the only species that understand gestures. And so I, I, I didn't know any better. I was only 19 and you know, I was an undergraduate and I said, well, I think my dog does that. Um, and he was like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, everybody thinks their dog does calculus. And I was like, no, 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 no. My, I'm pretty sure my dog uh, that I grew up with. Because, you know, of course, you play fetch. You throw the ball. And my dog was funny. He always liked to have more than one ball. And so I'd throw one. He'd run off to go get it. Uh, and while he was running off to go get it, it was fun sometimes to throw the other ball. Uh, and then he'd come back. He didn't know where the other ball was. Uh, and so he'd start barking and, and you would gesture and he'd kind of run off and orbit around in the area, sort of the direction you pointed. So I'd grown up my whole life seeing this. And, and so, um, when my undergraduate advisor was surprised, I was surprised. So, uh, anyway, uh, fast forward 20 years and now we know that, uh, dogs are really remarkable. And that's where the book you showed, the genius of dogs, the title comes from is um, having studied lots of different species, uh, it seems that dogs are remarkable in their ability to understand our gestures and our cooperative communication. It evolved via uh, domestication. Um, And it's probably a big part of what makes them successful is they really understand us in a way that other animals uh, do not. And uh, my advisor, who was so skeptical, uh, rightly so, because there wasn't any science, um, he now, you know, thinks dogs are fascinating and a wonderful window into any, um, is a big dog lover too now. And, um, so it's kind of a fun, uh, uh, story of how that all started. And, and when we made that finding back to your original question, um, uh, where I was telling you, nobody was interested in dogs, but because we discovered that dogs have this human like ability, uh, there's been an explosion in interest. Uh, and now there's lots and lots of scientists studying dogs. Yeah, I mean, if I, if I, you know, if I take that scenario and put it into, into my own life, whenever I'm in the kitchen, right, the dogs are always around. They're like, all right, maybe there's an opportunity. And if I drop something and they don't, they're not aware of it, as soon as I point to the ground, mm-hmm. they're on like, right yeah. away. Like, they see, okay, like you pointing. And like, I would have to point like to a specific, it's not just like to the ground, like to a specific spot where the food fell and they would arrive right away. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they basically, you know, they kind of read our minds, you know, but more specifically, obviously our gestures, our motions, facial expressions is that 
you know, is that something that you found was unique to dogs? Uh, it's not unique to dogs, but they are unusually good at it. Um, so even wolves, um, I've worked with wolves and we even have new data, um, from wolves. Wolves can read gestures, human gestures, but, and even chimpanzees can learn to read human gestures. Um, but wolves and chimpanzees that understand us using our gestures, uh, they, they, they need a lot of practice. Uh, and once they learn to do one kind of gesture, uh, first of all, they're, they're never as good as dogs, um, when they're able to do it, but after they're able to do it, if you, if you kind of change up, like say they learn that if you point to a certain location, I'm pointing to this location versus this one over here. Um, uh, if you change it and instead you look to where you're, you know, want them to go, they completely are lost. They have no idea that you know, well, wait, what are, you, you point, like, I just learned this cue, but you know, I can't generalize it to a new thing. Like if you look, or we do all sorts of other different ways to communicate, um, a young child would quickly understand that, okay, you're not pointing, but you're using some other way because you're trying to help me. And so I'm trying to interpret your behavior, knowing that your intention is to communicate in a helpful way. And it seems that's what dogs are doing too. Dogs are seeing us and, and understanding how we're trying to communicate and cooperate with them. And they're thinking like, oh, he, you know, his intent is to be helpful and communicate with me. And that allows them when you do something new uh, they've never seen before, they can sometimes uh, quickly understand what you're uh, trying to say. Whereas with a chimp or a dog, they have to completely relearn it. They're going to have to see whatever it is that's new dozens and dozens of times to form an association. Yeah. Um, so basically... Yeah, they can, a wolf and a dog, uh, sorry, a wolf and a chimpanzee can understand us. They can learn to do it. And especially if we, if they're raised by people, what we found is that dogs, um, and we just published a paper uh, a couple weeks ago, um, uh, for furthering, uh, our confidence on this, um, eight weeks old, uh, they already understand our gestures. Um, and the very first time anybody, uh, plays this gesture game where you point to uh one of two places where something's hidden the first trial perfect they know exactly what you mean so they don't need any experience and they can quickly generalize so it seems they're born prepared to understand us in a way that other animals can't um it's not that animals can't learn other animals can't learn to understand us but it's hard for them whereas for dogs they just it just comes natural yeah it's innate yeah it, it could be just because of the amount of years we have been together, uh, you know, as a, as a collaborative um, family, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. I, I always wonder what would happen, you know, because again, like I, I think dogs were domesticated something between 15 to 25,000 years ago, you know, evolved from wolves who at one point were our enemies and they somehow we became friends and historically, humans and wolves have kind of been direct enemies fighting for, for food resources and both kind of top predators in their own locations. Um, would you say it's specifically wolves, maybe without packs, that became more prone to human connection? Yeah. So then, it, then uh, once you find out that dogs sort of have this genius um, that we talked about, these social skills, uh, it it kind of gets fun to then think about, and I I had a lot of fun thinking about. Well, wait a second, why would you have dogs that are so genetically distantly related from us having a set of skills that are critical to becoming human? Because um, understanding gesture communication 
and having this window into the mind that we all first have nine to 12 months, it's critical to learning language and participating in culture. Kids that don't do that uh, tend to um, be children who end up on the autism spectrum. Um, so it's really an important skill set. Why would dogs uh, be human-like in this one little way and you know, our close uh, primate relatives are not? Yeah. That's a fun to think about. How, how could that be? Um, so, you know, one idea is uh, it takes a lot of experience. Uh, they just learn. Well, we covered that because talking about young puppies, eight weeks old already are doing these things. So that's crazy. Okay. So it's not that they require a lot of human exposure. Um, well, maybe it's, they, they just inherited this from wolves. Well, we kind of covered that already too, because it ends up that wolves can understand us. Uh, but they really have to spend a lot of time with us and um, uh, they have to really practice and they're not very good at it. I mean, they're not very flexible. Uh, they have to kind of learn each new way we might signal to them uh, in a really, uh, uh, you know, it's it's an onerous burden for them to learn each new thing. Whereas a dog, you know, I gesture, I look, whatever. They're like, oh, okay, you're not using a gesture, you're looking and you yeah. get it. Um yeah. So that left really the idea that something must have happened during domestication, because if they didn't just inherit this from wolves and it doesn't take a lot of experience and it's not something we can explain that way, it must be something they're prepared for that, that evolved as they were domesticated. Um, and uh, in the book, we talk about going to uh, Siberia and I had this great experience where there was an experimental population of uh, foxes that were, uh, they were domesticated uh, based on one criteria, uh, they were selected to be friendly, uh, friendly to uh, the people. Uh, and there was a control population that was kept that was bred randomly to how they interact with people. And it ends up the foxes are super friendly. Uh, they uh, cry and they, you know, when they see humans and they want to be picked up and they, uh, unfortunately, they pee for joy uh, when you pick them up. Uh, and that's uh, fun. Yeah, it is. They have musk, they have musk glands and they, and so you smell like fox, fox musk the rest of the day. But anyway, so I went to work with these guys and uh, not only do they have uh, this, you know, wonderful behavior where they cry like little puppies, even as adults, when they see people and they want to be picked up and they love to be near people. Um, they also have a higher frequency of curly tails and floppy ears and different colored coats. These are all traits we associate with domestication that then you don't see at the same level in that control population. So we, the experiment allows us to see that when you select for friendliness, you get a whole bunch of changes that come along with it accidentally. Um, they weren't trying to, uh, in their selection, trying to make the foxes look different, but as an accident of the selection for friendliness, because of the way the genetics work, those things are linked genetically, friendliness in these traits, um, that you wouldn't think had anything to do with each other, but it ends up that the hormones that control the behavior and the physical traits are related to each other. So you change one, you change both. So I got to go and work with the foxes, and uh, I found that selecting them for friendliness uh, actually led to them being better at using human gestures like dogs. So they look like dogs. Uh, yeah. and, and that's crazy because I thought when I went that, that uh, you had to select for smartness, basically, uh, if you wanted to get a smarter fox. But it ends up that if you want a more socially savvy fox, you select for friendliness. Um, so that was a really big, exciting finding. It means that if you want 
um, to explain dog domestication and even how they have become so good at reading us and understanding us. Uh, it has something to do with 15 to 25,000 years ago, there was selection for friendliness. How similar are the foxes as far as behavior uh, to dogs, You would you say? Uh, they, uh, I mean, they're still foxes, so they do all sorts of foxy things. Um, yeah. you know, uh, do they buy for your attention the same way a dog would. No. And, and, and they, I, the way that I would think, I, I mean, when I, I had never met a fox before I went to work in Siberia same. and, and so, uh, they're very cat-like actually. They're, they're, you know, if you're a dog person, uh, and you're used to like Labrador retriever kind of stuff, whatever, uh, and then you go meet these foxes. You're like, how oh, these things are like cats? Um, <laughs> they're, you know, but um, you know, they really are into. Um, uh, they love birds. They love feathers. They like to stalk uh, and pounce. And um, uh, you know, but but the experimental foxes are really attracted to people. They they want to be held and they like to be scratched. Um, and they're very playful. Um, so they're like dogs like that. So they're, it's, it was this interesting thing where they're kind of this combination between cat and dog. Um, yeah. I, I would not recommend them as pets. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and we, and, and there's a lot of confusion about that because, um, they have the, it, the experiment clearly, clearly shows what led, um, uh, leads to domestication, the first stage of domestication. But the key thing is it's the first stage of domestication. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things that have to happen between having selection for friendliness and then having a Labrador retriever. Um, it's the first step of um, what happens when an animal is initially domesticated. Um, it, it's kind of like you have to have this selection for friendliness to get a domesticated animal, but you don't get a fully domesticated animal just by selecting for friendliness, if that makes sense. No, um, and so, so the so the uh, the foxes give us an idea, though. Back to your original question: Well, how do dogs evolve this ability to cooperate and communicate? Um, that seems so remarkable. And it, and what we think happened was uh, twenty to twenty five. Sorry, fifteen to twenty five years ago, there was no agriculture. Um, all people were hunter gatherers. They were living as foragers. Uh, and uh, we think that fifteen twenty five thousand years ago. Uh, it wouldn't have been that foragers who were competing directly with wolves uh, as they left Africa and entered uh, the Middle East and Europe would have said, hey, we're running into these wolves. They're so cool the way that they eat all the food we're hunting. Uh, I wish we could go get some of their puppies and put them with our kids while we go hunting because then they'll grow up and we'll do this for generations and select them. Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like, that can't be what happened. So the foxes give us an idea of how natural selection, how nature could have uh, selected foxes, or sorry, wolves, uh, the friendliest wolves to be more successful. And as humans leave Africa, they start interacting with the predators of uh, Eurasia. Um, actually, all the predators get wiped out except wolves and bears. Uh, and so what we think happened was the friendliest wolves, the wolves that were most attracted to people, um, then uh, were an advantage because people were making garbage. Uh, they were leaving behind um, all sorts of resources that then wolves could take advantage of. But you had to be able to get close to people. Even though people were super predators, 
wiping out all the other predators, um, you had to be attracted to this thing that normally you would be fearful of. You had to replace your fear with friendliness. Yeah. And I mean, and that's your argument, right? Like we have, that there's very, there's a prevalent idea that survival of the fittest and that's how species have been successful throughout, but you're actually saying it's survival of the friendliest, the, the, the ones that can cooperate the best. Yeah. There's there, you know, nature's replete with examples of, uh, how the big success stories are all always some increase in friendliness that leads to more cooperation. Um, so, so dogs are exhibit A, where they evolve from wolves that, um, you know, the wolves that continued to directly compete with humans for resources and didn't form this mutual relationship. Sadly, they're, uh, you know, threatened with extinction and anywhere they're still found today. There's a few hundred thousand wolves remaining from the millions that there used to be. Um, dogs, that population of wolves that chose to be friendly and uh, obviously not intentionally chose, but had it in their constitution and their uh, personality to approach and be friendly towards humans and eventually form a mutual relationship. There's hundreds of millions of them now. Um, so they really won and they won big. They're probably one of the most successful mammals ever. Um, so uh, another example would be cleaner wrasse. Uh, they're uh, these small fish, uh, wrasse that you may have seen on a Nat Geo special. They swim in the mouths of predatory fish and they eat the dental yeah. parasites. Uh Okay, so those guys are cool, the little blue guys with the with the black stripe. So those guys, um, it's same thing, same idea. You have to replace your fear of a predator mm -hmm. with an attraction. They're actually attracted to the predator's mouth. That is a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, it, uh, but it's just a great example of survival of the friendliest, where uh, those fish are remarkably successful, um, and when you look at them. And their bodies and their uh, even their psychology, believe it or not, people study fish psychology, and it's more interesting than you could imagine. I really? too, I too am skeptical <laughs> of this, but I have read the papers, and it's quite remarkable what they can do, um, wow. and especially these fish. Um, so these cleaner wrasse are very cooperative. They know uh, the best predator fish to uh, work with. The predator, the predatory fish, know which cleaners are the best cleaners to be their dentists. Um, and, and so, uh, they have these relationships with each other. Um, and, but the cleaner rest, the other cool thing is their bodies have changed too. Um, so that, uh, they've basically become more juvenile, like, uh, and remain juvenile throughout their lives, which is a, a trait we see when you select for friendliness. So, um, they're another great example of, uh, friendliness in nature, uh, winning big. Yeah. I mean, I think we're the biggest success story when it comes to core cooperation in large numbers, right? Humans have been able to, especially now in this globalized economy that we have and, and free markets, we're able to cooperate with people from China to get products and send money and, you know, build bridges and roads and huge cooperation. And we're basically the, the, the biggest success story when it comes to that. I think that, I think, I, I believe I read it in the book, um, where it says that Neanderthals were actually small tribes. They weren't able to cooperate on, on these large numbers that Homo sapiens were able to. And that's part of the reason that people think that, you know, uh, they didn't succeed and they didn't uh, evolve into whatever they would have evolved to nowadays. Yeah, so one of, that's one of the big ideas um, 
is how do you explain why our species succeeded? Because there were many other human species. I mean, that's one of the big exciting findings in the, if we're going to study humans biologically, um, one of the questions is just like we did for dogs. Well, where do we come from? Um, Why are we so successful? Um, And one of the first facts that challenges our notions because the first, the first answer that people are going to normally give is, oh, we have language and other animals don't, or, oh, we have culture and other animals don't, or we have big brains and other animals don't. Well, all of those things are true now, but uh, the problem is there were 50,000 years ago, there were four species of humans, at least. There may have been more. Um, some people say 10. Really? And all of them had big brains, language, and were cultural. Uh, now they, the, when I say they had language, they may not have had full blown language, like, language like we did, but they certainly were linguistic. So those explanations don't work because yeah. why are we here? And those species are not, if they have all the traits we normally use to explain our success. Um, clearly that's not enough. And so that's where thinking about human friendliness is really helpful. We think that, uh, our species of human, and it's hard to believe given the complexity of our social life, because, you know, not only can we celebrate our cooperation, but we also have lots of breakdowns and we see that uh, vividly every day right now. Um, the, uh, so, but, but the argument is we're the friendliest, friendliest species of human that ever evolved, and that allows us to cooperate in new ways that other human species couldn't. Um, and so we're another example of survival of the friendliest. In our case, um, and in our newer book, Survival of the Friendliest, we, we really unpack the mechanisms that we think allow for that friendliness And when you do that and you look into the brain and you understand the psychology of our friendliness, you see that the the seeds for our worst parts of our nature are sown. Um, And and really, it's because we have an increase in friendliness that the paradox is born where we have an increase in our potential for cruelty. Um, And so, so, uh, well, basically, the short version is the same mechanisms that allow for our friendliness, they they can shut down. Yeah, And when they're dampened and when they shut down, uh, especially if we feel that uh, our group is threatened, uh, that opens up uh, for us to exclude certain groups morally. And uh, it, it, we can accept horrific things happening to other human beings because we don't even see them psychologically as being fully human. Yeah. Yeah, I always said that I think we are the most brutal animal in the animal kingdom. I mean, no other animal does to other people or other animals what what we do. But uh, yeah, it's that's an interesting you know way to look at it. I never thought of it that way. Do you think our uh, society looks different nowadays if we didn't connect with those wolves all those years back? Yeah, I do. Um, and and in our so I think there's evidence that's really intriguing. Um, so human animal interaction, the interaction between our species and other species has been linked to, um, how we interact with each other. So how we perceive animals is, uh, actually related to how we perceive other humans. Um, and so I do think that how we interact with nature and other animals uh, shapes how we cooperate with one another. Um, and there is evidence that uh, people who uh, sort of view animals as other beings uh, and sort of humanize them, maybe too much. I mean, maybe attribute too much human, uh, uh, too many human characteristics to them. 
uh, those people those people tend not to dehumanize other groups um, and they tend not to see other groups that might be different from some group they perceive they belong to uh, as uh, belonging to some hierarchical scale where some groups are superior and other groups are inferior. So um, I, I do think that, uh, you know, our relationship with other animals, especially dogs, uh, affects that. Yeah. I, I, I saw a, a, a research paper once that said that humans tend to select for cuteness. Uh, so we like to, we like, you know, we'll make dolls of, of teddy bears, of dogs, of cats, of other cute animals. And we tend to put more emphasis and maybe more uh, research money or more, um, I don't know, uh, nonprofits that tend to take care of those animals a little bit more because of the cuteness factor. And that's what we connect to. And we don't really care as much about something like, um, I don't know, maybe a turtle or maybe, no turtles are kind of cute, but like turtles whatever. Are turtles yeah, are cute. I'm sorry, turtles. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever, you know, we perceive to maybe not have those big cute eyes or right. furry face. Right. Yeah, no, that's right. There, there, there's some evidence uh, that, um, you know, animal, I mean, humans are attracted to um, features that are infantile or juvenile in animals. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, anybody who runs a pet store uh, would be terrified for their business if you passed a law that only allowed you to buy adult animals. Um, yeah. because they'd be out of business. And so I think that right there uh, is exhibit A for what you're saying. Um, but from a scientific perspective, I'll give you a fun one about dogs um, that sort of supports this. So a colleague of mine got really interested in why people adopt dogs from shelters. Not why individuals are interested in doing it, but why certain dogs get adopted more rapidly than other dogs. Um, and the interesting finding is there's a whole bunch of uh, characteristics, physical characteristics that people are responding to when they go to the shelter that they're completely unaware of. Um, so, for instance, um, people, uh, there's nice data showing that people think that dogs that have medium sized noses are the smartest. So, dogs that have short noses and long noses are perceived as being less intelligent. Okay. Wow. Uh, dogs that are uh, larger are viewed as being less susceptible to pain. Um, uh, we have some nice data on that. And then the final one, the one that my friend uh, did that is related to your point about, you know, sort of infantile features or juvenile features being attracted, attractive to us. Um, she did a study where she looked at the, the, the baseline rate that a dog makes guilty eyes. I don't know if you know this thing where they look up at you. Oh, and go, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's how, that's how they get half the food they get. <laughs> okay. So it ends up, it's crazy. Uh, it, it, it is a crazy story. Uh, th <laughs> that is not, that is not a small accomplishment that dogs make these guilty eyes. So it ends up, first of all, there's individual variability in how often dogs make guilty eyes. So some do it more than others. And so she just went and measured sort of the baseline rate. Like this guy does it, you know, five times in an hour. This guy does it 50 times in an hour. And, um, and, and the dogs are just sitting by themselves and they just happen to make that face. Yeah. Then they went in and they studied the muscles that dogs use to make the, that uh, um, facial expression. Mm -hmm. And it ends up that wolves 
don't have the muscle. Really? Yeah. So it's a muscle that has evolved and been enhanced uh, so that they can make that eye, uh, guilty eye um, face uh, in a much stronger way. And they can pull back the whites of their eyes, which humans respond to in a really, really strong way. That's fascinating. Um, And so it ends up that putting those two things together, uh, she was able to show that when dogs have this high baseline of making guilty eyes and showing more white sclera, um, they get adopted at a far uh, higher rate Mm -hmm. uh, out of shelters just based on how often they pull that muscle back to show their eyes. That's insane. Uh, yeah. And so uh, a lot of the dogs that they found were struggling to get out of the shelter. They just, they don't use that muscle very frequently uh, when humans are around. Yeah. And they, they're in the shelter for much longer. So throughout the tens of thousands of years that we've been living with, with dogs, they've developed this muscle, right, in their eyes. And we... I mean, I don't know if we developed something that reacts to that or is that something just humans have always had and then they developed that because of us? Yeah, it's the latter. That's the hypothesis is that um, humans actually are the only species of primate to have this white part of our eyes. Okay. Uh, if we were any other species of primate, uh, we both would be hiding our white part. Um, it's called the sclera and every other species pays uh, uh, energetic cost to produce melanin to cover that white part. So it's white because there's no pigmentation in there. And every human you ever meet, it doesn't matter where they are from anywhere in the world, they will all have that white. Um, and it's it's how our brains, uh, we, have a, we have a part of our brain, it's called the superior temporal sulcus. And there's specific neurons that we're not aware of, they fire and you can't control it, it's automatic. Um, and when you perceive, when the visual cortex perceives uh, this particular shape where you have the circle, the black, uh, sh- darker circle on the white background, mm-hmm. uh, this part of your brain is starts to respond with these neurons um, that all they respond to are white sclera. And they say, white sclera, white sclera, white sclera, white sclera. <laughs> and, they're, and they're connected to other parts of your brain, like your um uh, subcortical sort of uh, emotional system that um, your amygdala that kind of makes you pay attention to things that might be uh, fight or flight response worthy. Yeah. Uh, and it also, it's connected to areas of your brain that help you process, uh, you know, at a higher level and consciously. And so I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're driving down the road and you're, and you're driving and some car is kind of next to you and you're driving and you're looking up a front, you know, do I change or the speed, whatever. And all of a sudden you're like, I really feel like the person in the car driving next to me is staring at me. Yeah. But how can I know that? And it's super creepy and you turn it, Oh, they're staring at you. <laughs> like, how did I know they were staring at me? Uh, it's because those cells in your superior temporal sulcus are screaming via peripheral vision. They can see, you know, you can perceive via peripheral yeah. vision that white sclera is focused on you, those, those, ce- those cells start firing, your amygdala unconsciously is saying, oh, you should feel unsettled. Uh, and then your conscious mind sort of says, oh, something's going on. And uh, then you act uh, to look. Was, was that initially to avoid being prey? Well, the idea is uh, we have white sclera because we became friendlier uh, and we're trying to communicate 
uh, a couple of things is that we want you to see our faces. We want others to see where, where we're looking and that we're trying to help and coordinate. But at the same time, we want you to see our eyes because we want you to know we're watching you. Yeah. Uh, because we are a friendly species uh, and we do collaborate and cooperate. I want you to know that I know how friendly you are uh, <laughs> because I'd like you to continue being friendly. Um, and so it's, it, so it seems that uh, there was, uh, you know, a really interesting uh, uh, biological story there where these cells uh, and this network in our mind uh, have evolved to really respond strongly to white scars. So now to dogs, uh, if you are a, wo a wolf evolving into a dog and you somehow could, manipulate that mechanism uh where you have humans see you as human uh and feel like they need to treat you like a human not like a, a non-human uh like a rock or a, another animal that you eat well you're going to be in a you're going to be in an advantage yeah i mean the, the common idea is that we chose dogs to be part of our family and through generations of, of selective breeding and, and whatnot and um you could say that dogs chose us in a way, right? I mean, almost like an evolutionary decision of survival. Like you said, like right now, dogs are tens of millions or hundreds of millions. Wolves are basically decimated and hunted to extinction everywhere that they existed, unfortunately, which is another question. Like maybe I can ask two questions here, but why is one so vilified and one so adored? You know, wolves have always been this the big bad wolf, right? And dogs are always like puppy dogs, and we love them. It's it's such a juxtaposition. It's weird. Yeah, it's even weirder than that because uh, I love both questions. So the the you know the um, first is just to you know sort of echo and say yeah that's right is that uh, um, uh, dogs evolved from wolves, and I don't think we woke up one morning hunter gatherer foragers woke up uh, as and said gosh we need to create dogs. Um, yeah. You know, I wish we had more mouths to feed around here. And <laughs> I wish we could leave some carnivores with our kids when we go out hunting, you know, yeah. and we'll do it for generations and we'll breed them. Uh, like <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I mean, likely. We don't even raise crops, so we'll raise wolves. I mean, like, huh, that it can't be. So it has to be that uh, it was natural selection. And I think wolves chose us. Uh, a population of wolves chose us. And uh, boy, did they win big uh, with an increase in friendliness that then led to a new form of cooperation. So uh, on, on terms of the why wolves vilified, um, it's even more complicated than that, because if you take the question to Australia, uh, because you have the Australian dingo, the Australian dingo is a uh, dog that is uh, uh, evolved from a wolf uh, and is in the you know, domestic dog family, they're not fully domesticated. I think that they're kind of domesticated to the level that, say, the foxes we were talking about are domesticated. Um, but they're dogs. I mean, when you look at them, they're just gorgeous dogs. Um, so they're vilified in Australia. And there you can, you know, find some really disturbing pictures and photos and stories of, uh, if you're a dog lover um, who doesn't live in Australia, uh, the uh, you know I'm not saying that the Australians don't have their reasons, but it the um, you can find pictures juxtaposition where you've got Red Heelers, that famous Australian cattle dog, mm -hmm. uh, that is on the same truck full of carcasses of dingoes that the Red Heeler has helped, uh, you know, chase down and you know they 
shoot and kill and trap and poison. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you know, a dog and a dog. Yeah. Um, so it's not just that we vilify uh, wolves uh, or carnivores, uh, you know, that are wolf-like. I mean, that we, we, we even vilify dogs. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's uh, back to this original um, story of humans pulsing out of Africa, encountering new uh, carnivores, and we wipe them all out um, because we are a, a super predator um, with our projectile weapons. As soon as we have projectile weapons, we went from being sort of mid tier and not particularly impressive in terms of our predation. Um, you know, if you're a large ungulate. Uh, you know, humans walk up with their, you know, thrusting spears and their slow speed. And you're like, like, I don't know, I'm just going to keep eating. Yeah. Um, cause I know you're not coming over here with those. Yeah. Um, but as soon as we have projectile weapons, like the addle addle, which is this stick that kind of connects to another stick and it allows you to, it's like a chuck it. Uh, but instead of putting a tennis ball in the chuck it, you put a spear and you can throw the spear. Um, and so, uh, you know, as soon as you have that and you eventually you have bow and arrow and that kind of stuff, Ooh, we can, you know, we can knock everything dead. So yeah. now everything's afraid of us. Um, and so I think that's sort of, I don't know, maybe just to make a funny story about it. I'm, I'm exaggerating here, but maybe, you know, you're, we're like the, uh, you know, the kid that got made fun of on the, in the predator guild, oh, the humans, <laughs> here they are like, ha ha ha. Like you're laughing and now, now. And now we have to kill everyone. <laughs> now we got to kill everybody. Like you yeah. laughed at me. Uh, I don't know. So I think we just, you know, we're really competitive against other carnivores. And so um, anytime uh, a dog or a wolf is perceived as a carnivore, uh, threatening livestock, uh, you know, people are able to sort of uh, de- Humanize, but in this case, instead of dehumanizing, you know, sort of de-dogize uh, yeah. uh, those individuals, and and potentially uh, they can be cr- really cruel. Yeah, it's unfortunate because they they do have obviously they are crucial to to, to ecosystems. There's that beautiful. I'm sure you've seen that beautiful video of uh, uh, the the wolves that brought back the in Yellowstone. Yeah, in Yellowstone. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, they are very you know just like any top predator is in any ecosystem. They are crucial and they are beautiful animals. And it's just you know I remember seeing this video many years back. They did research and they took a wolf into a room and he, he had like a handler and there was uh, meat like a steak in a cage. And immediately the wolf tried to like get the, the steak. He was trying, he was trying, he was trying. Couldn't get the steak, obviously, because it was in the cage. And then eventually, after whatever minutes, he he kind of just quit. But there was no communication between him and the human. And then, you know, they took the, the, the wolf out. They brought the dog in. And the dog tried for maybe five, ten, ten seconds, realized he couldn't do it. And then he just looked up at the handle like, hey, you know, can, can you give me a hand here? Like, can you... So you could just see how completely different the the two, you know, the two carnivores are. Yeah, and so so that's one of the other big differences that's been uh documented is that uh dogs ask for help. Uh yeah. wolves wolves try to solve um things on their own. Um and there is uh, a lot of individual variability in dogs. So some dogs ask for help immediately and other dogs are more independent minded, uh more I guess in that case more wolf-like. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, that, that is definitely another way They're They kind of turn around and be like, Hey, you've got thumbs. Come on. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, 
Uh, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Come on. And the wolves are like, hey, you know, I got to solve this problem on my own. Nobody's going to solve this for me. And uh, it really doesn't occur to them uh, to ask a human for help. And and so that's another great demonstration of this cooperative communicative idea where dogs really have been shaped by domestication uh, to understand us and to ask us for help. Yeah. You know, I mean, we anthropomorphize, anthropomorphize, anthropomorphize or anthropomorphize? I like both. Tomato, 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 tomato. Yeah. But could it be that we have been doing that and, you know, because we want to see ourselves in our dogs, but could be that maybe with more research, we'll actually see that some of the things we thought we've been anthropomorphizing are actually true? Yeah, I think I think this I think this case of uh, cooperative communication is one where they're they're human like, but it is true you can uh, humanize and go too far, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's uh, unfortunate for our dogs if we do that. They are dogs, yeah. and I'm not suggesting that they're humans. Um, they have this one little kind of intelligence that uh, you know is like ours, um, but for instance, um, in in the genus of dogs. In that book, we 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 spent a whole chapter talking about uh, how you wouldn't want a dog to do your physics homework. So, yeah. for instance, um, uh, you know, there's lots of causal properties of the world. So, gravity pulls things down. Solid objects don't pass through each other. Uh, when things are physically connected, uh, they they act together. Um, so, dogs do not understand any of those causal principles at any deep level. Uh, they can learn through many, many interactions, kind of like we were talking about the wolves and the chimpanzees having to learn about how to interact with us. They can learn through many interactions that, um, hey, causal, uh, you know, this causal connectivity uh, principle, but they don't understand the principle. They just learn that, hey, uh, when I'm wearing a leash, because I've done this a thousand times, uh, I have to walk on the, on the human side when we go past a lamppost. Otherwise, we're going to not be able to go anywhere. Um, yeah. uh, but they don't understand that uh, solid objects don't pass through each other. They can learn that, oh, when something you know, is going to run into a solid thing, uh, you know, it'll still be there. But they don't understand solidity or gravity. And so uh, uh, bonobos and chimpanzees, our closest living relatives, they understand that. They understand it like we do um uh to a degree and dogs are just sort of hopelessly lost they don't get it at all so uh they definitely do not have human cognition uh yeah. if you look at the different types so i mean i guess that, that kind of leads me to to that to the quote i think it was i believe it was einstein maybe not but everybody's a genius but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree it will live its whole life believing it's stupid and I think, you know, for the longest time, and I think you, you made reference to this, that we've had some sort of a standard for what genius is. It was just it was just one thing, right. um, usually scholastic. And now we realize that genius comes in so many different forms, like dogs have their own genius. Uh, kids have their own genius. Bonobos, chimps have their own genius. Dolphins have their own genius. And like, could it be that we're that I, I don't know if we're still doing it, but maybe we've been doing it for for a very long time. That we've been testing the the, the, intelli- the intelligence of animals based on our own standards or how they react to us or how they react to our tests, rather than themselves between themselves between their own community or in their own environment. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people ask me and and sort of how this usually gets, um, you know, uh, we walk down this sort of uh, thought uh, stream is people say, well, what about cats and dogs? Or who's smarter, um, a cat or a dog? Um, and I get asked that all the time. Definitely and, dogs. And, <laughs> and, and, sorry, cats. Uh, yeah, sorry, cats. I mean, <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, I usually say, look, um, asking me that question is like asking me, is a screwdriver a better tool than a hammer? If you can, if you can answer that question, I'll answer your question because uh, as an example, uh, how'd you do on your echolocation test? <laughs> right. Uh, like, I, I, yeah. Zero. Yeah. Uh, so there are animals that can perceive the world and, and, uh, in ways that we can't, we're not even capable of, which means they have a whole mental faculty that humans don't even have. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it just highlights the the point that there are different types of cognition uh, and they vary independently uh, within a species. So you can be, you know, in the human version, oh, I'm great at English, but terrible at math, or I'm great at math, but I'm terrible at science, whatever it is, those things are not uh, necessarily linked to each other. Uh, and I mean, they can be linked, but they're not always linked. And um, between species, you can have a dolphin that has echolocation and primates who have this amazing visual acuity so that they can jump between trees. Um, you know, a dolphin in a tree, a chimpanzee fishing, like it's just not those, it's just silly, right? And so, um, yes, of course, there are different kinds of genius. Uh, how could it be any other way? And so um, if you take a biological perspective, uh, genius is defined in a, a much broader, richer way that helps us understand ourselves better and I think our place in nature. So yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, although I think there is a, I've seen a picture once, I think it was either a chimp or an orangutan and it was fishing. It was like spear fishing. There's like <laughs> that famous picture. So they somehow they figured that out. <laughs> um, so yeah, I know, you know, I know we, you don't have too much time, but uh, there's a few questions I wanted to ask as far as, well, these are questions that I got from from a few listeners of the podcast, and sure, great. And my, and my wife had ah. one, and I have one. So I think these are just questions about our dogs, and I think it's something that probably most people would be interested in, and maybe they just don't have a clear answer. So maybe maybe you have an insight. Um, so as far as time, do they have a sense of time? Let's say if I go away for two days or two months, do they know that mm. difference? Can they tell the difference? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go short and say, yes, really? Yes. Okay. Um, how do they sense things? So for example, I'll get off the couch a hundred times a day. Right. And around the time that we need to go out, my dog, you know, I'll go off the couch and my dog will know exactly what's happening in that specific moment that we are supposed to go outside and go do his business. Yeah, I, I think that's that goes back to your question about time. Um, I mean, just like, uh, you know, lots of animals have, there, there's a part of the brain that sort of responds to um, uh, time and there are mm -hmm. different mechanisms in different animals, but most animals have some way to keep up with night and day. Um, uh, they have a regular schedule of when enzymes are created that digest food. Um, and so there's sort of a, you, you wouldn't want to be constantly creating, uh, enzymes, for instance, that di digest food all day long, because that costs energy. 
So better is you create them around the time that you're most likely to need them. Yeah. And so um, there's all sorts of ways that, uh, you know, animals that are far more uh, evolutionary ancient than, than dogs uh, keep track of time. So, um, uh, you know, uh, yes, I do think that your dog, you know, if there's a regular schedule has an idea that, you know, okay, it's, it's getting close to that time where, you know, when they get up next, yeah, this is my big chance. <laughs> I mean, without fail around like five thirty PM to 6 PM, they'll start to get rambunctious and they're like, all right, we want to go for a walk. They'll, they'll yeah. tell you what they want to do yeah, but yeah. without fail every single day around the same time. Yeah. And you can see that uh, I've worked in lots of situations with captive animals, uh, you know, that not domesticated wild animals in zoos or whatever. And you see the same thing at zoos where, um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the keepers are going to go home. They usually uh, clean up and feed uh, and then they'll let the guys, the animals inside for the night. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in anticipation of that, um, yeah, there may not even be any cues. There's nobody there. There's no keeper or whatever, but the animals tend to move to the back of their enclosures and because uh, they're waiting to be let in. So they, they know. Um, and diff different animals have different ways to uh, keep up with that. Yeah. Um, do they know when we're sad? So, for example, my wife and I, you know, get into an argument and then one of us may be sitting and we're a little bit sad. Like there's, they seem to gravitate towards us once those things happen. Yeah. The, um, if I don't know what I don't know is, uh, do they feel sad because you feel sad? I can't answer that question. Yeah. Um, but are they sensitive to, uh, the tone of our voice? Uh, and can they understand that there's an aggressive interaction versus a playful interaction between two humans? Uh, that's, I think, very easy for a dog to understand that, oh, this is playful or this is not playful. Obviously, they can mix it up. Just like think of them as like a toddler. A toddler would would understand that to a degree, but not always mm -hmm. get it right. Yeah. Um, and uh, in terms of why do they come sit near you, it, it is even in wolves uh, af and, and many mammal species after there's a fight between two individuals, uh, other group members, especially in group living species, will come and sit near and be more likely to interact with those that have had the fight. Um, so whether they actually feel for you uh, and they actually are having sort of a, a truly deeply empathic response, I don't know. Um, but, but are they aware that that was an aggressive interaction and are they attracted to individuals after these kinds of interactions and, and are more social um, yes. And it seems, it seems to, in many animals function to relieve the tension in the group, uh, and repair bonds. Um, yeah. so I'm sure that that's the psychology that is in, that is, uh, being activated there. It's fascinating. Um, okay. Two more, uh, do they miss places? So for example, uh, I think I told you before we started, uh, the podcast, I, I went to Connecticut for the past four or five months. And, you know, Connecticut's beautiful. It's an open spaces, backyard, hiking trails. It's doggy heaven. Like they, 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 yeah. they, loved, they loved it compared to being in New York City. And they were extremely happy there. You know, we, we get, like I said, outdoors a lot. And then we came here last week and they seem completely fine. You know, like they're not telling me, oh, I miss it. But obviously, how would they? But 
it's just like, do they? Do they actually miss being in Connecticut and being outdoors? Is yeah, that something I, that they're capable of? So, so um, I'm going to uh, slightly hedge here okay. uh, and say, uh, think about if we could give them a preference test. Um, you know, we can give animals preference tests. We can, people always ask me, how do you know how they're thinking? I was like, well, we can ask them questions. Yeah. Um, and they can answer just like a person. They just can't, they can't do it with language, but, um, we give them choices. And so, you know, for instance, I can give an animal a choice between a risky option where in one case it, if you choose that option, half of the time, it's something really, really good that you really want to eat. But half the time it's something horrible. Yeah. Uh, and then the other option is it's always just something kind of okay. It's not horrible. It's not amazing, but you know, it's there. And animals, uh, depending on the species, like chimpanzees always go the risk. Bonobos always like the safe option. So we can give animals choices. Imagine uh, an experiment, if it was possible, uh, to give your dogs a choice between Connecticut and New York. Uh, you know, I'm sure they have a preference. And I, I'm sure if, the, you know, door number one is Connecticut, door number two is New York. Um, if they could walk out one of two front doors out of your apartment to go into the city or to Connecticut, uh, they would have some preference. Um, so, so it's not necessarily that they miss it, but given the option, they would obviously pick the one that they prefer. I, yeah, absolutely. No, without doubt. And uh, just like they would with food or anything else. Yeah. Um, and then miss it. Uh, so that's why I said a slight hedge. So I just yeah. wanted to establish that's where I feel confident that they would have a preference. In terms of missing it, missing requires a preference, but it also requires that you have a type of memory where you can sort of have a movie play in your head yeah. uh, and you can kind of, oh, there I was frolicking in the fields in Connecticut or whatever. <laughs> Boy, I, I wish I could do that now instead of the good old days. Yeah. Instead of pooping on the sidewalk or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, I want to poop on a big clump of grass. Uh, so uh, there is evidence that dogs have some capability to have this movie like memory. But the evidence we have is very specific uh, to certain situations. And so um, if you ask me to guess, I would guess, yes, they can miss things. But I can't, as a scientist, you're asking me as a scientist. That's why I'm on the show, not just yeah. as Joe Schmo dog lover. <laughs> uh, so I want to give you the science answer. So, so as a person, you know, I think they miss stuff. Like, yeah. But as a scientist, can I show you a study that sort of demonstrates it? No, I can't do that. But, but the closest thing we have is, there is evidence that they they can remember things that happened, uh, you know, an hour before. And um, in this really cool experiment, it's actually kind of an imitation experiment. You show them something an hour before they've never seen before and they can and they imitate it um, and uh, they can remember what they saw an hour later. Um, so the only way you could do that is if you were sort of replaying the actions that you saw someone do. Um, so they have some form of memory like this, but whether it's to the extent that we have, we still don't know. Well, I mean, I don't have any way to demonstrate that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's super interesting as well. Um, so the last question is, is alpha a real thing? I've seen like many contradicting, you know, articles about this, but I'll just give you an example. Let's say when we're walking, I have two dogs, one male, one female. And, and my, when me and my wife are out for a walk with them, I feel like, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's true, but like they, my dogs are relatively calm. They're not, 
I feel like I'm the head of the pack, right? I'm the alpha. That's how I feel, at least. Who knows if it's true? But um, and then when my wife is out with uh, my male dog, she says he becomes much more assertive, much more protective, almost as if he's taking on that alpha role of I'm the protector now. And he doesn't do that with me when me and him walk. He's he's completely fine. Like he's not a he's he's just regular. Right. And I haven't had that experience with her, obviously, because then he would change his behavior. But according to her, that's how he acts differently. Yeah. I mean, dogs have dominance hierarchies. Um, uh, wolves have dominance hierarchies. Um, it ends up that the dominance hierarchies that dogs have are more relaxed than than wolf dominance hierarchies. Um, and wolves have uh, relative to dogs have very strict dominance hierarchies. Um, so if you, if, you know, I, I think the main, you know, thing I would say is if you think, you know, you have to dominate your dog or be the alpha dog in order to train them, um, or for them to learn or listen to you, uh, I don't think there's really good evidence for that. Um, if the question is, uh, you know, sort of, does your dog in its social relationship with you, is it seeing you as someone who, you know, is a leader or, um, you know, has, uh, you know, sort of capabilities that it doesn't have. Um, and, you know, maybe you could, uh, prevent it from doing something or allow it to do something. And it, and it understands that relationship. Yeah. I have no, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they do. Um, and, uh, I certainly think they understand that other dogs are, you know, able to stop them uh, from feeding when they want to feed or that they need to avoid a certain dog because they might bite them or be aggressive. And likewise, there are people who might stop them or help them or, yeah, they, they totally are able to categorize people in really interesting ways. But the sort of idea that either because dogs evolve from wolves that have this strict hierarchy um, or because uh, you know, there's a dude on TV who, you know, says he's has to be alpha to train dogs. Uh, that, that there's no evidence for that. Uh, in fact, uh, if anything, there's evidence contrary to that. Did he put out a lot of misconceptions, that particular guy? Uh, I think he, I think his show is a show about human psychology. Uh, I don't think it's a show about dog psychology. Um, and so I think part of the reason, and, and anybody who is in the pet industry, which is a massive industry in the United States, it's larger than Hollywood. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, people who are marketing new products to pet owners, um, they're marketing them to pet owners. Yeah. Uh, they're not marketing them to the pets because uh, it's all about what we perceive that our pet may need or want how what we perceive will be required to train the dog. Um, and so I think that's what that person tapped into was uh, a certain set of biases and priors, as economists talk about, uh, that people have. Uh, and it really resonated with that type of human psychology uh, and a set of beliefs. But do you need to dominate your dog in order to train your dog? No, no, no absolutely no, not. No. No, um, there's there's not really evidence that uh, that that's needed or necessary. And I and just to be clear, I, I don't just work with people's pet dogs. I work with the military, too. 
yeah. you know, and dogs that are military dogs. And I can tell you that uh, shock collars and dominating and, you know, you can do You can train dogs to do amazing things. Um, uh, positive without, feedback. Yeah. With a lot of positive yeah. feedback. Right. Yeah. I actually think some of that stuff shouldn't even be legal, but that's a whole, uh, it's a whole other show. Um, Ryan, man, I really want to thank you. I know you have to go, so I don't want to take up too much extra time. Yeah, the kid, but the kids just got here, so I got to yeah, go. Yeah, <laughs> perfect timing, perfect timing. But, uh, hey, man, I, I had a blast. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thanks so much for – Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, man, I, I, anytime. I had a blast. When are, where can uh, people find you? Where can they find the book? Uh, uh, my, I, I'm on Twitter, uh, Be Hair Dog Guy. Uh, and then the book, you can buy the book anywhere books are sold. So uh, just look for our name. Yeah, and I'll put a I'll put a link in the show notes. Make it easy for everyone to find you. And yeah, man, I had a blast. Thanks so much. All I've right, take it. care. Take care, man. Bye bye.